0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, uh, it was a very great interview with James Mishra. James is uh, starting a stealth company in the AI space and has had a long long experience with artificial intelligence. So we went into kind of a deep dive on what the current state is. Uh, We did this a few months ago, so it's not totally up to date, um, but it is probably still some good information there if you are a novice and want to understand more about um, artificial intelligence and where it's headed. So I hope you enjoy this. If you do, please find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and subscribe. And if you're feeling very generous, go ahead and leave a review as well. As always, I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop I, My DMs are open. I would love to hear from you, hear what you think about this episode or any of the other episodes I'm doing. Have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is James Mishra. He is a, a former software engineer at Uber, and he's currently working on a startup. Uh, really excited to have you on. Welcome welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, happy to be
0: here. Yeah. What are you most excited about right now?
1: Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's really deep. I mean, a whole lot of things. Um, I'm really excited about, I guess... AI, Um, you know, there's been hype about it for 30 years and a lot of us are sick of hearing about it, but um, we truly are at the point where the computers are getting fast enough and the data sets are big enough and, uh, you know, we're good enough at math and uh, I think the turning point is now.
0: Hmm. And what does that turning point look like?
1: I mean, I guess the, the biggest example is what's already happened with uh, facial recognition. Um, a couple of years back, uh, Facebook beat human performance for recognizing faces. And, and that, uh, is yeah. that
0: is that s- static faces, or have we also gotten to the point where we can measure the change in relate uh, that that computers are better at monitoring the change in
1: somebody's uh, relation uh, face over time? Um. So I don't remember the specific result for that, but uh, Google Photos clearly uh, identifies baby pictures and it connects them to the uh, connects them to adults. And I don't know how they do that.
0: Okay, so I'm actually asking a, a slightly different, nuanced question to that, which is so that's a really interesting one that I wasn't thinking about. From baby to adult, what I was talking about humans have uh, humans get most of their emotional cues from watching other people's faces, particularly the eyes. Um, and yeah, so, uh, and uh, I was reading somewhere yesterday, I think it was in um, a Wired article about AI, uh, that uh, computers are good at the static, just recognizing a face, but they aren't yet good at uh, watching emotional, that uh, humans are still better at watching emotional reactions in time, basically.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know about relative performance for that, but uh, a lot of the research on deep fakes uh, helps, uh, helps build the infrastructure for that. That's a
0: really interesting. So yeah, the deepfakes are doing that essentially because they are they are they are merging the face over time. Uh, At least they're producing that on a on a using using software. What for non technical people. uh, What is the most Important thing they should know about AI
1: Basically the the way I see how every single AI algorithm has worked for about 30 years is that we want to climb a mountain and get from the ground to the top. And uh, the sort of destination or like sort of beating human performance is, uh, is this top of the mountain and uh, we started at the bottom. But the catch is, is that it's a really foggy day and we don't know where the mountain actually is. But, you know, we, uh, we're, you know, we're very, uh, proud people and we say, uh, we're going to do this anyway. And we're, we'll make the assumption that as long as we're going uphill, you know, as long as we can feel ourselves, um, you know, on this incline and, uh, you know, we can, uh, we're, we're sweating cause we're going up instead of down that it must be in the direction of the mountain. And in so many disciplines, it works exactly like that. I mean, uh, we've, uh, uh, We've really optimized going from the bottom to the top uh, when it comes to certain computer vision tasks like facial recognition. But um, for language, uh, that's a little harder. Uh, Sometimes we get stuck on a medium-sized hill or a small hill. And uh, once we're on top of that hill, going anywhere looks like we're going back down. So that uh, when we're on that hill, it feels like we're at the top of the mountain even though we're not.
0: And why is it important to go up the mountain?
1: Well that's uh, that's sort of the answer to the question of what we're looking for or like if we want to recognize faces really well um, the top of the mountain is like is like doing that that goal it's the solution to your facial recognition or you know NLP or understanding sentences
0: so I was I, I interviewed Stephen Wolfram the founder of uh, Wolfram Alpha a few days ago and he gave me some really interesting insights which are seem relevant here which is that uh, Computing, like you're saying, is getting so good that it can do the tasks that we want it to do. So then the main challenge becomes figuring out what we want, um, and figuring out what we want is a very deep philosophical question for both an individual and for a group. Um, what do you think about that analogy? Do you think that's a, a accurate assessment of what computers are doing for us?
1: Yeah, um, so in the narrow technical sense, uh, what I do when I train algorithms is I actually shape the terrain. Uh, I try to flatten out all the little baby hills and uh, make the mountains steeper or higher. But then I guess he's talking about the more general case where, um, you know, how do we know these algorithms are not biased in ways that are uncomfortable for society or unethical? And, uh, you know, really, we have no idea how to shape the mountain like that.
0: Mm. But that's And that's what he said is that essentially we as human beings have to define that because that is a socially, you know, I've been talking a lot about recently about how we have natural laws of the universe and then we have social dynamics. Uh, And that ethics question seems to be one of social dynamics. Um, Not to say that there are not things that are essentially right or wrong to do in the moment, but in this sense of how we're going to train computers, it is kind of an open field as to what we want them to do. And that ethical question becomes a very big question. Um, What is the importance of ethical training among uh, engineers and people building this technology?
1: That's a really complicated question. I mean, of course, the, uh, the ethics matter a lot. And historically, we have not focused about that enough that said i don't know if a lot of the exact details we're hashing out will be what we want to do in 20 years or um you know i think we're working on the first draft and uh that's that's uncomfortable because uh you know if uh someone like me wants to say you know i don't agree with uh you know with this ethical idea it just it just sounds unethical but really uh um you know in medicine or in the military you know they have very strong codes of ethics but it took them hundreds of years to build uh, you know the idea of what is a war crime or we you know what is unethical in medicine and uh, those fields have the strength of those uh, principles after building them from a long time.
0: That is very interesting point and now technology and culture are starting to, what I see is that technology and culture are starting to this extremely quick feedback loop, which, whereas before, you know, thousands of years ago, it would take 100 years for some major change to happen. And, you know, it could happen more than one person's lifetime. And now that period of time between that feedback loop between te- technology and culture is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so essentially, we don't have the, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that we don't have the time to essentially go through hundreds of years to find out the ethical implications of technology. But then there's another point, which is that it is very difficult to know what we're, what the, in the outcomes of what we're building will lead to. So for example, Facebook, you know, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else knew that, that, uh, that they were building software that, could, that was so open that anybody could you know, create a post and do all these things that allowed people to do things that are mediated by algorithms and mediated by the software instead of being mediated by people. Other people, I don't think they realized how th- that situation could be gamed. Do you think they, they, they were aware of the potential backlash or the potential implications of that the, the technology?
1: Any platform that sells advertising knows this. Uh, that's, that's the value proposition of the advertising. Uh, if I want to do a huge ad campaign, the whole idea is that I am influencing millions and on these, uh, on Google, you know, the ads look like search results. On Facebook, the ads look like posts. Uh, same thing with Twitter. So it follows that and organic posts can do this too.
0: And what you're saying is, so they 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 did know that 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 because because there's the advertisement part, but then there's the bot part, and that wasn't as much of a problem on Facebook, but it was very much a problem on Twitter, which which you could create fake accounts. Um, I would love to, I just got reminded of, I would, I would love to have a conversation about where that goes as these, as AI gets smarter in these bots, do, do these bots have more potential for looking like looking, being more convincing replications of other human beings?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, Facebook and Google both really benefited from the product intrinsically fighting fraud on Facebook. You connect pretty much only with your friends. And they all have their real name and their real photograph. And they connect with everyone else as your friend, too. Uh, it's hard for a bot to uh, sneak in and become your friend, unless you truly just want to friend anyone. <laughs> and you know a lot of people do. And then on Google, uh, you know, it's basically the same thing, where popular pages link to other popular pages. And uh, if you're just some uh, random person that creates fake things, um, and of course, people have all kinds of search engine optimizations to try and climb up at to the top of the results. But then uh, Google figures out something else, and they push them back down.
0: And so that, but Twitter didn't have that. Twitter had essentially had a more open platform, so they're allowed. They allowed a lot more bots in. Correct.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone on Twitter can be anonymous uh, until recently. You didn't need a phone number or anything. Uh, now they do. And. and uh, Everyone on Twitter can go viral and you don't necessarily follow your friends.
0: Hmm. So it's a much more open system, which is actually kind of why I like it more. Uh, but that open, and this is, goes into something I've been thinking a lot about, which is that my personal degree of openness is trending more towards high, higher and higher openness to whatever whatever is happening, uh, which is really interesting. But then there are also pitfalls to that. There are also negative um, negative problems. So, and I wanna I wanna make sure that we touch on the question I asked you before about the as we go into the future and AI gets better in these open systems. Does a bot will a bot be able to take on more human characteristics, and will it be harder and harder to decipher whether you're communicating with a bot or whether you're communicating with a real human being? Um, but then also, I'd like to explore this question of openness in as an individual and what that leads to. Whichever one you want to do.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, first of all, in openness uh, that's really hard in social networks. Uh, so many of my female friends uh, just hate using Twitter. Uh, they get all these DMs from men that are very inappropriate. Uh, they get you know replies from humans or bots that are you know actively threatening or violent. Um, You know, there's a psychological cost to the openness Twitter has, but on the other hand, you know, Twitter's done a you know a lot of stuff uh, in you know related to the Arab Spring or political revolutions that wouldn't ever happen if you just connect with only a hundred friends.
0: That is very interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. That I didn't really realize that as a man, it's pretty different for me being open. Uh, cause I don't, I mean, I do get, I do get random bot messages, uh, trying to catfish me. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know what catfishing is, it's basically when a, when a bot, uh, pretends they're a human goes after a man, uh, in order to get them to, uh, uh, uh do compromising things on video, uh, and then, uh, and then blackmail the, blackmail the men. So it does happen for men. Uh, but it happens just like the scale. It happens for women. Uh, is like way, way more. Why do you think that is? Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, I feel like you, you. I feel like you really have to ask a woman uh, yeah. again. You know, I haven't. Uh, I haven't lived inside there, but I mean, uh, I think it is. Uh, you know, men are socialized in a very specific way to, you know, hit on people they don't know. Um, you know, men commit almost all violent crime, um, so it's natural. Some of that bleeds over on the internet. Mm.
0: And then for men we don't we don't receive nearly as much and when we do receive it and it's, a, it's in a different form um which is really interesting so going back to that question of of this this ai how will the with deep fakes and with just like what what is ai
1: i mean I was, those are two different questions <laughs> yeah. uh, So, uh, I mean, regarding just, uh, you know, whether AI makes it harder for us to understand what's real, um, you know, there's basically been two big advancements in the past two years. And one of them is deep fakes or, you know, other people call them generative adversarial networks. And uh, it makes it a lot harder to produce, uh, makes it a lot easier to produce images and audio and video that looks real. And that's the, that's the first advancement. And the second one is in language modeling. Um, when, uh, when you have your phone and you're typing and it has has an autocorrect that predicts your next word, uh, that's a language model. Hmm. And uh, if you build one that's big enough and good enough, uh, it can recite entire paragraphs that look like they're real. And uh, OpenAI, um, this uh, you know beautiful you know, AI nonprofit that uh, I think went corporate recently, they produced this giant language model called GPT-2. And uh, they actually said it was so powerful that they wanted to withhold it from the public because uh, all of these people running bots could now produce entire paragraphs or essays that um, look realistic. Although if you dig deep in on, on a whole paragraph, maybe it doesn't make sense yet, but it's very close.
0: And what does this mean? Does this mean that a bunch of writers are about to be put out of work?
1: <laughs> um, so I went to this uh, natural language processing conference uh, in June, and I was trying to get all the researchers to laugh at the idea that we should make a movie studio from these, uh, you know, language model scripts or something. You just, uh, you just set it off on something like Fifty Shades of Grey, and it makes a, a brand new script that isn't uh, under copyright um of course we're many 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 years away from doing that for real but it is scary how good these models are and if you sift through enough of the output and it makes infinite output right i mean you can run it forever uh, if you sift through enough of it you do get a lot of stuff that makes sense
0: does does that sifting happen also also through software or do you have to manually sift
1: <laughs> um so historically manually but just uh in the last week or so, there's this huge paper on text summarization, and the the amazing flex that the authors had is the abstract of the paper was actually the output of their own summarization algorithm. And we you know we've never seen something like that before. You know, people have been trying to do summarization for 20 years, mm. but now um, now we're getting something that a human could have written, and uh, and that is scary. If you stack all of these are uh, models together. Uh, you build a, a video, a deep fake, and the script is from a language model, and uh, you you know edit it with summarization. Pretty soon, uh, you get something that's a complete machine. Uh, no human intelligence. But unless you really dig in, you won't notice.
0: And, that, and that we've already been see, starting to see that with, I think it was Sequoia investing in an artificial influencer. Uh, uh, and, and that's just weird. Uh, the, but it makes sense from their standpoint, I'm sure they're probably making money. And but it's just so weird. It's so cyberpunk. It's so like, like, what does this mean? I have like, from this conversation, I have no idea what this means for in the next five years of me, you know, I'm writing, I'm I'm producing videos, all of this stuff can be faked. What should I should I hire a uh, uh, or, or should I, you know, build a, a fake version of Stuart? And then, you know, like, like train models on, on adapting what I write. And then, and then you know, what, what, what does this mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, there's probably companies out there trying to do that where, you know, they take your own writing or they summarize it, or um, another big advancement in AI is uh, style transfer, uh, taking your text and making it look like it came from the Bible. Um, or, uh, or you know, Shakespeare, or something where you know they're also writing English text, really you know, similar to you would. But it's uh, they can transfer your style, and uh, um, people are doing style transfer for images, uh, taking your selfies and making them look like Van Gogh portrait, uh, portraits.
0: A friend of mine was was trying to do that for uh, for paintings, uh, and then sell those paintings, uh, which w- 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 was pretty interesting, and. So, how do you know that it isn't hype right now, that, that we're actually are close to this? I mean, you've already been explaining a bit, a bit about why you know it's not hype, but but why, why, why are you so convinced
1: that right now is the difference? Um, we're starting to see you know real economic results. Uh, you know, Facebook benefits from having superhuman facial recognition. All of those photos and tagging and uh, metadata that makes Facebook the number one platform that allows them to sell those ads. And uh, there are more direct applications of applying computer vision to MRIs or CT scans or, you know, self-driving cars. Uh, for decades, AI basically didn't make money, but now it's really about to. Mm.
0: And are, are you paying attention much to what's going on in terms of China And like you, it seems like you read a lot of these papers. Uh, Are you reading papers that come out from China? Are they in English? Can you, do you have access to that?
1: Yeah. I I mean, uh, scientists, uh, you know, around the world all communicate in English. It's, uh, it's, you know, what they have to do. Although, you know, as the world gets bigger, I think people are publishing more things in their native languages.
0: And it seems like what you're taught, this technology will make it easier to do cross- cross-language border things as well. Like you publish your paper in English and then it, uh, it can also translate into Chinese. Is there, is there much translation being done in these natural language processing?
1: Um, well, of course there's you know, things like Google Translate and uh, you know, it's a truly amazing demonstration of these neural networks and language models translating from you know, something like more than 100 languages I don't know if we're ready to do that on scientific papers that are full of jargon equations and, um, yeah, jargon and whatnot, but you know, it's not hard to imagine that a search engine would help you find uh, documents that are in different languages.
0: So I'm going to bring in a piece that I learned from this book called range. Uh, in this book range, uh, talks about how over specialization is not necessarily the best thing to do. And a key argument that he has is that uh, we, as human beings, our IQ, our you know our measures of of natural intelligence or uh, our measures of uh, uh, genetic intelligence. I don't mean to say that IQ is is actually that important of a of a metric, but IQ doesn't is not changing from generation to generation. But the thing that is changing from generation to generation is our ability to. Um, work with abstract concepts. So each generation of younger people gets better and better at kind of having a much larger library of abstract concepts, language that they can work with and they can they can communicate with. Uh, and so what you're bringing into this makes me approach that with a very interesting idea, which is like, what is the, if, if the computers can get so good at dealing with abstract concepts and creating abstract concepts how will human intelligence shift in order to adapt to that and I'll give an example because you know us at our age we grew up with Google and Google allowed us to make it we adapted to Google in that you know that information isn't so important anymore like that one piece of information isn't important we can just go look it up and I'm sure as an engineer you're you're even more on that side. And so we adapted to Google. Google. How will we adapt to AI? Where does that go in terms of um, what we humans will start to focus on?
1: Yeah, I think uh, software engineers have already been living this kind of life. Uh, in the very beginning, all of these CPUs and processors had uh, um, programming languages that were you know, very simple, uh, you know, you know, assembly languages. And they were hard for humans to program in because it was just so, um, you know, you move this data from here to there. uh, Very tedious instructions that didn't map to what you wanted to do for your business. And then over time, we built higher level languages that translated better to English, that let us encapsulate uh, sort of business objects or transactions in human readable ways. And then a program called the compiler translated, translates it back to what the CPU understands, the uh, simple assembly language. So now we have this high level language and then a piece of software that translates it to the low level language. And at the beginning, this sucked. Um, the generated code was very slow. It's not what we would have written directly. But these compilers got better and better, uh, You know, their, their own little form of AI in a sense and now they produce better assembly than almost all human programmers. Hmm. And, uh, so back in the day, you know, we'd uh, look at the slow assembly and then we'd tweak what the compiler put out or um, try to repair it and make it go faster. And now it's the other way around. Uh, the compiler tells us how to go faster.
0: And people have been talking about this for a long time which is essentially when, when will we be able to write code that writes itself essentially, right?
1: And, and depending on your definition, you know, we're already there. Um, I know other people don't, uh, don't mean it that way, but it is true that these optimizing compilers come up with structures and patterns that um, I don't even know that I'm programming with.
0: <laughs> and you can't peer into them. It's a, it, it's, it seems similar to the analogy of, of like, uh, uh, we don't really know why SSRI antidepressants work or we don't really know why a lot of medicines work. We just know that they work. And it's a similar type of thing that's happening with, with engineering. We, we, we you can't, f- you know, you, you're doing things that you don't understand how the-
1: Well, uh, I, I have to push back on that. Um, I shouldn't have said that so literally. Um, you know, engineers invented the compiler. We have a completely perfect understanding of how it works. Mm. Uh, we can read both the high level and the low level languages. Mm. Um, you know, we, We do have an understanding of what's going on, especially if you are an expert. Um, But it is true that for most of these optimizations, most of us wouldn't come up with them by ourselves uh, unprompted. Hmm. But again, if we dig into the source code of the compiler, which is usually available for free, and uh, we dig into the output it gives us, uh, we can see its thought process.
0: So you could find out, you could investigate and figure out what happened if you got a result that was unexpected.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, it's part of our training. Um, I took a, a, you know a university course in compilers where we had to write one, and uh, it, you know it was uh, I had to understand uh, why my compiler worked or didn't. You know I had to really uh, get the whole pipeline working.
0: That's so interesting. Um,
1: so SSRIs are a little different in that we didn't make the brain at all, and we didn't make really the SSRI either.
0: That is really interesting. I want to go back to this question of how has your life changed or how have you adapted to so you're you're one step further for me i've got I've just got Google I you know it's changing the way that I ask questions um, and it's it's changing the way that I use uh, abstract concepts and language you going one step further and actually like being in a job where it requires you to to uh, have a large range of abstract concepts uh how has that changed your ability to uh, live or have fun or, you know, like, learn? Uh, what, what has it done to your life?
1: So in a, in a very narrow sense, um, when we tried to build AI algorithms in the past for facial recognition, uh, we would do, you know, studies on how far apart the eyes were or, you know, sort of patterns and outlines. And now we don't bother with that. We have so much data that the computer finds out what matters. And in some sense, I you know, program less for that. And I don't understand what faces are really like.
0: And what is your job then? What is your job becoming?
1: Shaping that sort of mountain and valley a, in a smoother way, but without the domain understanding of what faces are like or what voices are like or... Um, what text is like it's uh it's easier to get the algorithm going with the basics and have it teach itself
0: so you're shifting your 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 view to a meta view basically so you're, yeah. you're going back meta 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 which makes sense for what humanity does because that's the part that computers won't be able to do for a long time right
1: yeah I mean it's uh, kind of the very basic measurements of you know what a face is like Took a lot of human effort. And even then, they were still uh, imperfect. I was still, uh, you know, we weren't getting all of the signals that we could have been. And now the computer does that. And now we think, uh, you know, we can detect faces. Uh, what do we do with them? You know, what, uh, you know, now we think more about the business. Hmm.
0: Okay. So here's a question that you, you'd probably be uh, pretty good at answering what will, what will the effect of AI be on business in the next two years?
1: In the next two years oh that's uh, that's the hardest interval to predict. Um, <laughs> why, why two years that? ago I would never have predicted today. Um, actually funny past story uh, in late 2016 I went to uh, this machine learning conference and I saw all of this effort, uh, work on language models and my best friend and I quit our job to start a company uh, applying this to customer support tickets we wanted to build an email client where uh, we searched every email that came in and tried to find uh, the answer in your company's internal database or in past emails or even on Google. And it was, uh, it was hard, uh, you know, for classic startup reasons, but also because uh, the machine learning was not as far as I hoped in 2017. Now it is. But yeah, now it's about to be 2020. 2020. And again, we have these giant models like GPT-2 and such a deeper mathematical understanding and the computers are all faster and cheaper. And uh, now I'm kicking myself because uh, yeah. you know, maybe now is the right time, but I, uh, I was just two years too early.
0: And that, that okay, so there, I've got a whole bunch of different ideas that are coming. We could go for this one. One is geopolitics and the effect of AI on geopolitics, state governments running how important this technology is to national interest. Uh, and then the other one, is timing of business and uh how how this kind of feedback loop that we were talking about is making the timing of business so important uh but it's also crazy because you go on product hunt and all of a sudden you know you have an idea and then you go on product hunt and 20 other people have already done it already so it's like what, what either one you want to go down what, what do you feel like most interesting to talk about
1: um, yes yeah, so you know, national security or how this affects governments. The uh, the big example I give is that, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, both America and the Soviet Union tried to capture as many Nazi scientists as they could, and then um, you know we put our Nazis to work uh, building rockets and ultimately uh, creating a lot of the early innovations that got us to the moon, and uh, it's. It's amazing to think, uh, you know, what if the Soviets got all of the scientists? Uh, what if, uh, you know, what if we were just behind on that and uh, the Soviets got to the moon? And mm-hmm. I think we're, we're about to lose the war on AI talent. Um, so much of the good talent is in Canada. And, uh, you know, they have come to America to work at Google or something. But, you know, if we really care, you know, the best AI talent should have been in America to begin with. Uh, to say nothing about uh, the talent that China's developing.
0: Well, this gets into something really interesting because so you've got the China part and China is the only country with a very, very firm border around its internet. Um, uh, uh, the rest of the world is open in its nature of the business that might charge st- open in its nature of um, of the internet. Uh, that might start to change very soon. We might start to see a lot more national borders around different countries. But until that happens, it's almost like a, a virtual, uh, virtual space of intelligence. So the fact that there's a bunch of people in Canada who are really good at AI might not necessarily mean that U.S. citizens don't get access to that. It means that U.S. government probably doesn't get access to their to their to their intelligence. Uh, but that's a, uh, this is an interesting concept that's coming up to me right now. Is just this, this, how is the online virtual network of intelligence changing national interests? Um, what do you think about that?
1: So, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we're cool with the Canadians and, uh, you know, many of them do come to America because all of the big industrial labs are here at, you know, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and, um, Autodesk and so many other companies, but you know, if you just compare the size of the American economy to the Canadian economy, it shouldn't even be a contest. You know, we the best researchers should have been incubated in America, um, and the fact that it's not really as true as we hope is a bad sign given how big we are.
0: Uh- this is a personal question, but what is the best book that gives an accurate representation of what AI is, uh, and then also applies that to geopolitics?
1: And also applies to the geopolitics. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a really tough one. Um, there,
0: there's one book I have in mind, that, and I can't remember the name of it, but it goes into China, America, and AI war, the coming AI wars, some some book like that. But I was just wondering if you know of any specific books that give a accurate representation of of artificial intelligence. Because I know it's a word that people throw around
1: a lot, but but, you know. Um so yeah, like I said, it's hard to predict uh, you know, just the next couple of years. And um you know geopolitics is even harder to predict. I think uh you know, three years ago no one was thinking about these Russian bots. Uh um there were there were definitely a couple of activists uh, that accurately predicted what was going to happen, but the hysteria that we see now—you know—it just wasn't in place then. And uh, if you interviewed me then, I wouldn't have guessed it.
0: Mm. And this is this is an interesting thing that I talked about with uh, Nicholas Bryzewicz from the Long Now Foundation. We talked had a conversation about technology and the kind of techlash, and how that started uh, in the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds with Luddites, and actually like uh, Heidegger had a, had this uh, had, has started this philosophical inquiry into what techlash is. Um, and so we, we don't know what's going to happen and our uncertainty seems to be getting greater and greater the more, technology, the more this feedback loop tightens, uh, our uncertainty about what will happen. You know, it was pretty easy 2,000 years ago to predict what would happen in our lives for the next 100 years, like work on a farm, go to sleep at night, get up in the morning, work on a farm again, you know, maybe a ruler changes, there's war, something like that. That was unpredictable, weather was unpredictable. But now the whole thing seems to be getting more impreg- predictable. What do, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm sort of a technology maximalist. Uh, you know, I, uh, I want as much technological development, uh, and probably a lot more than anyone else. But I do have, you know, we do have to recognize that a lot of people feel like power has been taken away from them, um, whether or not that's true. You know, uh, I think Facebook and Twitter has empowered the average person to Mm -hmm. actually reach an audience of millions, but it also, uh, it also has influenced a lot of people for the worse.
0: And we as human beings tend to societally pick on the worst and bring out the worst as an example of the truth. But in reality, it's just kind of a subjective choice to whether to look at the worst or look at the best, uh, which I find interesting. Uh, Being a technology maximalist what, what do you see wrong with being a technology maximalist, if, if
1: anything? It's a, uh, it's bad marketing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, no one, no one really wants to hear maximalists these days. Uh, it also sounds very emotionally cold. Um, when you are a maximalist with technology, often, you know, you don't look like you're listening to people.
0: Hmm. And I, I remember a previous guest, Michelle Singh. Uh, uh, she was working on AI that was held as a therapist. Uh, and she brought up an interesting point, which I haven't been able to refute, which is that uh, humans are judgmental. And if therapy provides a non judgmental space, uh, and if that's the key ingredient to therapy, then artificial intelligence and technology might actually be a better form of therapy um, because it is non judgmental. What do you think about that?
1: I don't know if we can uh, guarantee that it's non-judgmental. Um, we would uh, we would have to have you know you know thousands of conversations with it and um, have therapists review them and then have therapists review each other. Um, you know, it's uh, being non-judgmental is a subjective thing, and uh, it's entirely possible for uh, 999 people to have a good experience with a robot therapist. And then for the 100th one, the robot therapist is racist or something. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, uh, again, these, uh, these are big boxes of, you know, numbers and fractions, and we can't really peer inside them. Uh, we can peer inside a compiler, but not a neural network. What
0: do, you, what do you mean by that? We can't peer inside a neural network?
1: So they basically all look like Uh, you know, spreadsheets that are little matrices of numbers. And uh, when you do matrix multiplication, it, uh, you know, basically takes us one step forward in uh, the path to the mountain. But once again, we don't know where the mountain is and the exact direction that these numbers take us is not clear ahead of time or... Uh, we don't know the rules in the general case on when it, you know, it takes a step to the left or when it takes a step to the right.
0: Interesting. How has your life been affected by technology? We've already kind of touched on a little bit, but what are some of the benefits that technology has brought into your life? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um well so i used to work at uber and uh, i always give uh you know uber as this wonderful example of you know technology doing good and it's funny just because so many people hate uber and it's uh such an unpopular take for me to say to other people but uh it is this you know very slow application of ai where in the beginning it was just Travis texting a a black car driver and there's no AI and now there's all of these algorithms so that when a driver finishes a trip they have another one immediately and they're not waiting or not making money and there is algorithms and data science for safety and anti-fraud and you know keeping the platform um you know letting everyone trust the platform more and uh every rollout of one of these features, you know, shows us the benefit of, um, you know, models and technology.
0: And how has that affected your life in a positive way?
1: Well, it makes, uh, it makes Uber rides a whole lot cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, you know, especially in, uh, uh, you know, in kind of conditions that would otherwise be dangerous, like, uh, inclement weather, or if you're drunk or, um, or whatnot, you know, something like 50 million people have, uh, have benefited from, from this platform. And it would all be slower and more expensive if we couldn't tune these models to make everything more efficient.
0: Mm. And so you're saying that you, you, your life has gotten, uh, f- uh faster and more efficient through this.
1: Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've personally taken a couple thousand Uber rides. Um, and I know people that have done even more.
0: Mm.
1: And, uh, of course it's a, an even bigger benefit to the drivers. What, what do you mean? Well, they, uh, I mean, they just do more rides in a day, right? I mean, uh, I only do two rides in a day, but uh, a driver could easily do, you know, 20. Mm. And, uh, and they directly make money from it. Uh, these algorithms maximize how much money Uber makes, but it splits all of that evenly with, you know, uh, linearly with the driver, sort of like one third to three quarters. So, you know, we all make money together.
0: And uh, it seemed like a couple of years ago that Uber was really basing a lot of their projections on uh, self driving cars coming about much quicker than they are. Is that an accurate representation?
1: Um, so, I don't want to speak for the company exactly, but I don't think anyone at the company truly thought we would get to 100% autonomy in, in two years or something like that. Um, the common thing I heard was that uh, you, can, you can imagine a self-driving car taking on you know, 0.5% of trips, and then we make it better, and it does 1% of trips, and then 2% of trips. You know, Very very easy trips that go in a straight line. It would be extremely safe, and uh, it just does that route you know, 30 times a day. And it would go slowly enough that it would probably be slower than driver churn, so no individual driver's ever replaced. The car just comes in to, um, comes in to supplement uh, or, I guess, take over for drivers that have gone on to do something else, or they've, uh, you know, they found uh, they found work elsewhere.
0: Mm. And I yeah, I didn't mean to ask that question specifically about Uber. I, my real question I wanted to uh, wanted to get into was why is it taking longer for self-driving cars to do their thing.
1: I think a lot of the big players wanted the self-driving car to drive everywhere. Like they, they truly wanted to deploy at a hundred percent. Um, I think now we do have the technology to, you know, do 1% of trips. Mm. Um, you know, don't quote me on that. I don't speak on behalf of anyone, Mm -hmm. but you know, the marketing that definitely Tesla has is that, uh, you know, this autopilot will eventually take you everywhere. And, um, they, they're really betting the farm on just that. And the same thing with, uh, with Google. Um, you know, Google doesn't Waymo doesn't have any human drivers. You know, they, uh, if they start a ride-sharing service, unless they only want to go in straight lines, uh, you know, or hire human drivers, they really want to get to 100%. And that's, uh, that's their goal. There's definitely smaller startups that, um, there's one that only serves retirement communities, and huh. uh, not a whole lot of traffic there. Huh or college campuses
0: what are those called do you know the, what those ones are called
1: um, I just, i'm sorry i don't remember the names uh, yeah, i'm just
0: gonna write it down an example of
1: uh... but yeah people are deploying autonomous vehicles on uh you know these safest roads possible and they're they're getting somewhere
0: and so in these specific use cases they they're they there are self fully are they fully self-driving cars
1: like end-to-end do you know well, I haven't ridden in one, um, oh. but I, uh, I imagine that any real deployment of self-driving cars will have a, a remote driver that can take over. Um, you know, it's one of these things where if you're, you know, in your self-driving car and it starts raining and uh, your car gets confused, uh, you, you would like someone to take over driving. Maybe in a Tesla, that's you, but in a Waymo vehicle, it would have to be someone that's not in the car. Yeah.
0: Mm. And that's the interesting thing about being in San Francisco, and there are all these cruise uh, cruise vehicles all over the place, uh, and they've got these engineers. They've got like three engineers in uh, in all these cars, and it's so interesting. And, and now knowing that you know self driving cars are going to take a little bit longer to 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 fully come to the market than we had expected, it's so funny watching them because I think like you're paying the, them engineer salaries, uh, and so it's probably not profitable from a like if they're just trying to take a competitor to Uber type of standpoint um here's a question i wanna ask you don't have to answer it cuz this would be a question that, that that specific to uber how much of uber's business is actually making um money off of the rides as opposed to the data surrounding the the rides the machine learning um ip that they're creating all this different stuff do you feel comfortable answering that question
1: so, uh, actually, I want to jump in on the last thing you said. Sure. Uh, I can't speak for crews specifically, but a lot of these companies uh, don't have engineers in, uh, in the front seats. Oh, interesting. Um, they, uh, you know, there's driving, you know, there's one person uh, hovering over the steering wheel, and there's another person looking at the laptop to make sure that the car is about to recognize the stoplight that's approaching.
0: Those, okay, so those aren't engineers. No, they, used know, to, really they, code. they used to be engineers, but they're no longer engineers anymore in, in the car. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, like, operations people or, you know, non-technical people, um, they just have to be able to read the laptop.
0: Hmm. That's so interesting. And what about uh, your next question? Yeah. Yeah, so how much of the business of Uber, and we don't have to just call it Uber either, how much of the business of Lyft, how much of the business of Facebook even, uh, is the, the way that they create the money now as opposed to the way that they can potentially create the money through IP of machine learning or 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 in the case of data, like where people are going, like what are the important data points, like any anything in that, in that general area, what would you what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's hard to disentangle them because uh, you know Uber's data science operation, you know, very directly service rides and food delivery and freight forwarding. Um, in the future, you know, there's so many things that Uber can do. Uh, I'm not saying we've thought of them or anything, but um, you know, marketing for you know businesses like bars. You know, getting an idea for them on mm-hmm. how much traffic they can expect in the future. Um, you know, whether uh, whether they're sort of growing or shrinking in terms of uh, sort of a uh, you know in a city population wide level. Um, are they no longer in a hard hot part of town? Um, mm-hmm. Uber has been very resistant to advertising. Uh, you know, they philosophically don't believe themselves as a Facebook. Uh, where they try to sell you things, but um, location-based advertising has always been uh, kind of an idea that maybe people outside of the company have thought of.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure people are outside the company being like, I want access to that data that they must have because that would make my life so much easier. Um, That's really interesting. So we got like five minutes left. Do you, uh, are you talking about the company you're
1: making? Is it, st- is it in stealth? Uh, what, are, what are you doing? Um, it, is, uh, it is still in stealth. Uh, it is a consumer tech company applying AI to, uh, to sort of the media space. i uh, not going to say what it is, but, you know, something like movie studios or record labels or, uh, you know, traditional media makers haven't been able to use AI, and uh, I think I figured something out. But uh, it's going to take another six months for me to tell people.
0: Uh huh. And are, are are you working with anybody else?
1: Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's always you know friends that help out now and then, but um, you know, it's uh, it's still not very official yet.
0: Okay. Um, and what is the what is this is the will be the final question? What is the effect on human creativity? Of artificial intelligence.
1: That's such a hard question. I mean, uh, in uh, I guess, like for music or movies, and you know, a lot of what we see now is formulaic. And I think AI can help us make bets uh, that are a little more ambitious, or allow us to create a special effects or sort of like music mastering that we haven't been able to do before.
0: Hmm. how has it impacted your personal creativity
1: well I'm an engineer I'm not creative at all <laughs> no no I, would I, I don't, would I don't make music or movies or anything yeah, so I would I would I would highly disagree with that
0: uh, uh, I, I'm gonna give my spiel that I usually give to people about creativity so um, most people assign creativity into this box of artists and everything like that uh, there are several different versions of creativity one of those I guess that would be the arts uh, would be considered part of the arts, but I believe that every human individual is creative, uh, because if you think about it, we're creating our reality as we speak. It's the the my brain is looking at these things all around all around me, and then it's dumbing down what's actually there by a factor of ten uh, and creating an image inside of my head. And the same thing works for every other sense. So just be based on our very basic humanity. We are creative individuals. And then I would say an engineer is highly creative because you are creating things. You're, you're, you're yeah. using what other people have built and then you're, you're putting those into new, um, new conglomerations, new combinations, and then you're even creating your own software as well. Uh, so given that sense of creativity, how has it impacted your, your, your creativity?
1: Yeah. So I mean, just for uh, you know, writing prose, uh, you know, there's all these cute little tools like Grammarly or Google Translate. Um, for writing code, uh, there's more and more tools that give you hints on where is the right way to go, uh, you know, stuff like static analysis or IntelliSense or the optimizing compilers we've talked about, um, there's a a dozen startups trying to help you search through code or, um, the whole no code movement. Uh, there's, you know, there's a hundred companies in the space.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, so, anything else you think would be really valuable to for my audience to understand about uh, artificial intelligence before before we end?
1: Don't be scared. Um, in the long run, we all get a tool that makes us more powerful.
0: I love that. All right, cool. Uh, and how can people find out more about you and what you're working on once it's once it's live?
1: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my username is R-I-S-H-M-I-S-H-R-A.
0: How do you, how do you say that? Uh, Rish Mishra. Okay, Rish Mishra. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been yeah, really it a pleasure. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed this episode with James Mishra. If you did, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other major podcasting platforms. Uh, as you know, I am releasing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, um, and I'm releasing them pretty early in the morning, so it'll update to your iTunes account and any other kind of thing that you are listening to podcasts. By the way, go go find us and subscribe. Uh, so yeah, I will release episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got about 25 more in the pipeline now, um, and uh, once I get back to San Francisco in mid-March, I'm going to go back on that uh much more intense schedule of one or two, three interviews a day. Uh, cause I love doing this so much. So have a great day. Uh, find us on iTunes. Uh, come find me on Twitter at Stuart Allsop. I, I, I have a great day. Thanks.